This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. After last week's theatre-heavy show, tonight is more of a music-focused show, but with a good dose of theatre thrown in too. We have a chat with Columbia's most recently arrived conductor, a look at how the magic of the White Christmas musical still resonates with younger audiences and theatre students, and what makes that spine-tingling, goosebump-raising ringing sound that barbershop harmonies produce. So if you are sitting comfortably, even those of you at the back, then we will begin. Back in late June, I had the chance to welcome to the show the conductor Wilbert Lynn. At that time, he was in Colombia as one of four finalists for the position of music director and conductor for the Missouri Symphony Orchestra and was in town to take his turn conducting a week of the orchestra's Hot Summer Nights program. Of the four finalists, he was the only one who I managed to chat with on the show. And so I was delighted when eight weeks later, the Missouri Symphony Orchestra made the announcement that Wilbur Lynn would become just the third music director in the symphony's 50-year history, taking over from Kirk Trevor, who had 20 years earlier taken over from the symphony's founder, Hugo Vianello. Wilbert joins the symphony after three years as the assistant conductor with the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. His musical background is diverse, having worked with symphonic music as well as operas, musicals, vocal coaching and early music. He has an undergraduate degree in piano, received his master's in a music degree from my neck of the woods, Manchester's Royal Northern College of Music, and his doctor of music in orchestral conducting from Indiana University's Jacobs School of Music. In the world of top flight conducting, you never get a conductor all to yourself. So as well as being the music director designate with the Missouri Symphony Orchestra, he's also debuting with the Oak Ridge, Tennessee and Ann Arbor, Michigan symphonies this season and has become an assistant professor at the University of Northern Illinois. And then there's the fact that he founded his first orchestra while still an undergraduate, also sings and plays the harpsichord, got his pilot's license during the pandemic. And excitingly for me, he thinks that audience applause should be a lot more spontaneous at classical music concerts. And this Sunday, he makes his first public performance as the music director-designate conducting the Missouri Symphony Orchestra's annual Symphony of Toys concert, at the Missouri Theatre. Wilbur Lynn, welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. Thank you so much for having me. So I love that while we were all frantically learning to use Zoom during the pandemic, you were out there getting your pilot's license. (laughs) Do you have a piece of music that you'd like to listen to while taking off? Well, I'm such a baby pilot that I don't think I have the uh, additional brain power to do that. So I'm mostly just <laughs> focusing on flying when I'm there and staying alive. So take me back to 2008 when you were an undergraduate student at the prestigious National Taiwan Normal University. And you thought, I know, I'll found my own orchestra. 
You were, I guess, about 18 years old at the time. What did you feel was missing that made you want to do that? Yeah. So when I was in high school, actually, I started, uh, you know, conducting my school band and, you know, subbing for my teacher when she was away. And uh, that got me into conducting. That got me into thinking that, hey, this might be a career path. And uh, while I did go to uh, do my undergrad in piano, I have that whole journey was thinking about, you know, I might want to explore if I can pursue professional conducting. And uh, when I was at, at school, I was super fortunate because I have, a, I have a group of friends who are amazing players, and a lot of them are actually playing in major orchestras all around the world. And they were just so nice to me. And when I was like, hey, I really want to conduct a concert. Can you guys play for me? And they all <laughs> said yes. So that's how we started. So it was just a one-off concert, and then it became an orchestra. Yeah, exactly. And you're still involved with the orchestra today. But now it's a fully professional chamber orchestra, right? Yeah, so in 2013, we fully professionalized. I mean, we don't have a lot of concerts. We have three or four concerts a year, and it's per service. We only do in the summer. And actually, we're on a hiatus after COVID. But all the way until 2019, we've been doing annual summer concerts. And we have players from really all around the world. We have amazing players. Some of those are from my very first performance. And a lot of those are people we you know got to collaborate with later on. So you are entering the world of orchestral and classical music at a time when audiences are falling, donors are aging, and there are many calls for not only the musicians, but also the programming of classical concerts to be much more diverse. And you have said that we should be leaving behind traditional forms of the genre and focusing instead on the spirit of classical music. Would you talk a little bit about that for me? So my whole idea is that it's about the music. It's about the feeling that we experience when we hear the music. And it's it's that experience that's important. So it's not necessarily, you know, when you clap. It's not necessarily two-hour, two-half concert, things like that. When it works, it works. And I'm not saying that we have to throw all of these away. But we have to take a, really take a look on what works and what doesn't and make sure that people all feel welcome. Because I think that's the most important thing. There are some pessimists thinking that, you know, orchestras as a genre are facing a huge issue. And in some ways we are, but we are also reaching new audiences, you know, more than ever. So we want to make sure that every new audience member we reach, they are feeling comfortable coming in. And, you know, if it's the ritual of when to clap, that's barring them coming in, then that's something we need to fix. And that's basically my philosophy. <laughs> I don't know if it's barring them coming in, but I think there is a formality, a stiffness about going to a classical music concert that obviously yeah. you don't get at a rock concert or a concert right. when you're in a bar. And so it feels by comparison very awkward. Is there a way to make it less stiff? So I, I don't think it's that you don't have any form or formality when you go to rock concert. There are also, you know, rituals like when to go in and when to clap, when to sing along. There are these rituals, right? It's mm. just how do we communicate that with modern audiences? And we might also have new audiences coming in who feel like, hey, I actually like the learning how these things work and being part of this community who just know how it goes and what to do what. So it's really about examining how, how that affects the experience. If it helps, it helps. If it doesn't, then we need to Think, do something about that. Do you think there are certain tales or tenets of classical music that you feel would help to attract the next generation of audiences, things that connect with younger audiences? Yeah, so staying relevant is very important because I think, you know, music always connects people. And this is not just a lofty phrase I say. It's because, you know, we all feel something when we hear a piece of music and we all naturally breathe with our music. The music naturally speaks. It's about, you know, how we make sure that the music is making sense 
to the audience. That's the most important thing we need to do. So it's either by programming things that reflects the values of our community or reflects the things that people care about or finding ways to communicate the music and allow people to understand the language of music. And that might be done through, you know, the the videos I share online, the type of explainers I do or pre-concert talks or things like that. But it's always about how do we make sure we all feel the music through our own ways, but understanding that language, if that makes sense. Is it about sharing more works by contemporary composers or composers that don't look like old white Europeans? (laughs) (laughs) It could be, but I mean, there's nothing wrong with old white Europeans. It's about, you know, if that's something that's borrowing people, right? So that's definitely part of the piece, but not the whole thing. So we definitely do want to feature composers that reflects who we are right now. You know, this community, this community is white, is black, is Asian, is Latino. So we want to make sure that people see themselves on stage, but also it's about, you know, just putting things that are relevant. So for example, One of the programs I programmed last year with a youth orchestra, we started with American composer Frank Takeli's piece called Radiant Voices. And this piece was composed after the 1992 Los Angeles riots, race riots. And we finished that with Tchaikovsky's Symphony No. 6. And these are very different pieces. But as a musical answer to this whole country's mood and the things we're thinking and the race relationships and, and the social unrest, these pieces speak to people. And it's about bringing out that relevancy. Sometimes through programming, sometimes through explaining how the piece works, but really just talking to people and making sure that we are addressing what our community is collectively thinking about and facing. Do you think that as a conductor, part of your role is to turn and engage with the audience, to tell the stories, to provide education? Because again, when you think historically, conductors, they come on stage, we all applaud, they turn their back to the audience, they conduct, they bow, they walk off. (laughs) What is your philosophy on that? Yeah. So as a storyteller, yes, it's very important for the conductor to tell a story. Most of the time, it means being able to speak to the audience, explain it. But there are also times it makes sense to let the program speak of it for itself. But either way, I completely agree. Yes, the conductor is there to engage with the audience. And actually, every musician, I want to make sure that this orchestra, we connect with our, our community, not just you know me talking to you, but eventually you will get to know more of our musicians. They will bring more things to the stage, and they might even narrate some part of our concerts that we did at little bit in our young person's concert that was closed and just we only offer that to our third grade audiences but we'll gradually introduce more of that but uh on the on the other hand yes engaging the community is one of the most important things because we are representing this community we are the columbia-based missouri symphony we not only represent columbia but by our name we represent the state so we want to be part of the collective consciousness, what we're thinking about, what we're facing, and how we can address things through music. So if you think about five years down the road, we're having this conversation again, Mm -hmm. what what is your vision, what you want to have accomplished over the next five years? What would you want to have in your rearview mirror in five years time? We want to build an orchestra that this community can be proud of so they can say that, hey, this is Columbia, Missouri, the home of Missouri Symphony Orchestra, because we will have done things that we uh, released more recordings. We, we commissioned more works that reflects who we are. And we did more in outreach and education that more people know about us and are inspired by us. So we really want that more complete approach to being part of this community. We don't want to just serve, you know, the traditional high society, if you will, members of Columbia. I mean, we want to serve everyone, including them, but we really want to be the orchestra of the people. It is said that you are known for your creative programming and inviting stage presence. And I wonder for you, 
What is the difference between a good conductor and a great conductor? <laughs> You're digging into my marketing spiel there. <laughs> yes. So a good conductor and a great conductor. Um, in, in my philosophy, conductor is a communicator. I mean, there are a very select few of conductors who are dictators and they can do their job so well. I will never be able to do that. And there's nothing wrong with that. But in my mind, being able to communicate in real time, both in terms of communicating with the orchestra musicians and the audience, that's the most important job of a conductor. So a good conductor is one who can carry out his or her job well, but a great conductor is really having that real-time interaction. And not only it's easier between musicians, but really feeling the room and really make uh, bring everyone into that real-time communication is someone who's really, really good at their jobs. Do you ever go wrong? Uh, Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you know, you, you have to you have to take your risks on stage. For example, if I sing a phrase da da di da da and sometimes you want to do a ya da di da da and maybe on stage I was feeling that I wanted to do dun da di da da just take it one step further. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. You know, most of the time when you have a good good relationship with the orchestra, you know where to go, but sometimes I sometimes it goes goes wrong. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, how do you pull that back? You're sending a message out to the orchestra, you've got, a, you know, a thousand people sitting behind you and they're like, "What?" What do you even mean by that? I mean, like, how, how do you recover? <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully it never gets bad to that point, right? So most of the time you send something's wrong, you go, go back to the basics. I sometimes tell people, you know, the higher level the conducting is, the less uh, structured your conducting gestures are. But you can always go back to to the school teacher, one, two, three, four, and make sure everyone still understands. <laughs> and it's really, again, it, it's about feeling the room, right? If we know where we're going, if we send some instability, how do we bring things back. And just to clarify, when I say school teacher, there's nothing wrong with school teachers, right? I adore all my education friends because they're amazing. But I'm talking about, you know, being very clear to beginner students, that kind of one, two, three, four conducting. Right. So this weekend is your inaugural public performance here in Columbia and your audience will be hundreds of children and their accompanying adults. So tell me about your creative vision for this concert, which runs the gamut from Irving Berlin. You've got some Bach and from mm -hmm. Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy to the Broadway musical Elf. What's your vision for this concert? Yeah, so I just want to make it very clear. Uh, we do actually have two creative directors. We have Marissa and Shelby who are amazing in putting together this concert. I'm working with them. So this is not completely just me. But one of the things that collectively we want to bring out is, first of all, we want to make this beyond just a Christmas concert. This is obviously a Christmas concert, but we want to talk about what Christmas means or what this kind of holiday season means. And we even want to bring out certain multicultural aspects of this. So for example, we included a piece uh, about Diwali. We included a piece about Hanukkah. And this is not just because, you know, we can't just do Christmas and we want to add other things, but this is more exploring, you know, why we are feeling what we are feeling during this Christmas season. And as humans, we we naturally have this yearning for hope during a time of year when the dark night is so long and the day is so short. And across cultures, we have different ways and different things that we celebrate. And the reason why we put these things together is that, hey, there's something more than a nice holiday celebration, but is there something deeper than that? And of course, this is still a fun concert. We want we want everyone to enjoy. And this is not all about, you know, how deep this is, but you get what I mean. <laughs> right. You have a great array of amazing vocalists that are performing in the concert. You have Melissa Bohan Webble, you just talked about, who's performed multiple times on Broadway, mm -hmm. as has Shelby Ringdahl Cox, your other creative director, Anthony Fortino. Plus you have the phenomenal Simone Sparks, big crowd 
pleaser. We all love Simone. So when you have a vocal performer on stage mm-hmm. and you've got this big orchestra, how do you incorporate their presence into your direction for the orchestra? Because often they're not, they're kind of standing out of your eyeline, right? Right, right, right. And you know what? This is one of the things that a good conductor and a great conductor does differently. I think a good conductor will, will be able to follow, will be able to bring things out. But a really great conductor is not someone who really imposes his or her will, right? It's about feeling where the music is going. And one of my job, I think an important part of my job is encouraging everyone to listen to the same thing. Sometimes the orchestra is leading, sometimes our featured soloist is leading, and then we're just feeling where the music is going together. And that way, you know, the music speaks for itself and there aren't that many conducting needed. It's just finding where the flow is. What for you is the favorite moment of a performance? Is it walking out on stage and the performance is all still ahead of you or is it when you lay your baton down finally and you think, okay, we did it? Like, what's a better <laughs> feeling for you? <laughs> you know, one of my favorite feelings is oftentimes in, in the fourth movement of a symphony that we have five more minutes to go until the end of the concert. I'm like, oh, my God, this is it. This is the end of this concert. <laughs> and it's so great. <laughs> and you don't, want to, you don't want it to end. So that, that is... Uh, that is one of my favorite feelings. But I, I'm definitely more of a uh, looking forward than a thank God we did it person. <laughs> so I'm curious about why you chose us. You obviously had the world at your feet. Those of us who live in Colombia, we love our culturally creative and adorable little town. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder what made you choose us for this next stage of your career? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I don't think I have that uh, that that big of agency there. You guys chose me, and I'm so grateful. So I want to make sure that that that's very clear. But on the other hand, I do want to talk a bit about my history with Colombia because 2017 that was the first time I I, I went to Colombia. I was a conducting masterclass student conducting your Missouri Symphony Orchestra, huh? and that was when that first of all the orchestra was amazing. So that left me with a with a really really good memory. But also this town because this is a small medium sized town. But but it's so forward-looking. It's so multicultural. It's so intellectual. It's so curious. You know, this kind of community really draws me in because it's not really about if you're in New York City or not, but whether the people are open to new ideas, if the people are interested in things and, and are just genuinely curious. Those are things that really, really draws me in. We've well, only been here a little while, but I wonder what cultural delights of mid-Missouri you have had a chance to experience so far. Yeah. One day, uh, I think a few weeks back, it was a Sunday morning. I was getting ready for a youth orchestra rehearsal with uh, with our Missouri Symphony Conservatory. And I was just wandering on the street ahead of my, my hotel and I went to Lakota Coffee and I sat in and I saw people, you know, not not all of them are on their phones, which is a, a rare sight these days. <laughs> people are writing. They have actual newspapers there. So that's amazing. So that feeling, I immediately text my wife. I was like, you know, I love this coffee house. And I love this city. <laughs> so it's this kind of quality, you know, the people who are doing interesting things, the characters who are interesting, that kind of feeling, that's what draws me in so much. Well, we are delighted to have you here. The Missouri Symphony Orchestra's annual Symphony of Toys will be performed at the Missouri Theatre this Sunday at 2pm, supporting the Marines Toys for Tots program. You can find out more at themosey.org. And Will Berlin, I hope you will be delighted with your new home amongst our multicultural, curious, adorable town and be a regular visitor to Speaking of the Arts. Thank you so much much for making time to chat tonight. Thank you so much. 
The film White Christmas, starring Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye, was released by Paramount Pictures in 1954 and was the first film in the brand new widescreen process called VistaVision. But in the year 2000, Missouri became part of the White Christmas story with a world premiere of the stage adaptation opening at the Muni in St. Louis. The stage musical closely follows the film, two former World War II servicemen, Bob and Phil, who honed their performance skills during the war, end up with a successful song and dance act and get a call from one of their old army buddies, asking them to go and see a performance by his two sisters, Judy and Betty. There's some romance in the air and instead of going off to Florida to perform their show, Phil decides to dupe Bob and hop on a train to Vermont with the two girls. And, surprise upon surprise, who should own the lodge in Vermont where the girls are booked to play but Bob and Phil's old army commander? However, business is bad, times are hard for the general, and so Bob and Phil take it upon themselves to make the general's world a better place. And the story goes on from there with a lot of singing and dancing and all the classic Irving Berlin songs from the movie, White Christmas, Happy Holiday, Love and the Weather, and all the rest. Depending on your view of the holiday season, it is either, quote, a jolly live extravaganza that only Scrooges can resist, as heralded by New York magazine, or, as reviewed by the New York Times, it will only appeal to people who, quote, would have to be desperately, even pathologically nostalgic to derive much joy from a synthetically cosy trip down memory lane. But that's showbiz, right? Someone's always going to love it and someone else is going to pan it. But either way, White Christmas will be welcoming in the holiday season on stage at Stevens College's Mecklenburg Theatre in Columbia, opening tomorrow night for just five performances. Directed by Broadway leading lady and now Stevens Associate Professor of Acting, Lisa Brescia, and with vocal coaching by a man who has shared his vocal talents on many great stages, including St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City, the Beijing National Grand Theatre on Tiananmen Square, and New York's Carnegie Hall. Stevens Associate Professor of Voice, Nolly Moore, both of whom are my guests this evening. Lisa and Nolly, what a delight to welcome you to Speaking of the Arts. Thank you, Diana. Such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I am going to confess up front that I am in the bar humbug posse and I find Christmas a schmaltzy excess. Lisa, do you excitedly unbox your Christmas decorations and hang up your stocking right after Thanksgiving or are you counting the days until December the 26th? Well, I would say that, you know, I'm right in the middle of a move. Being new to Colombia, my husband and I are moving on Monday. So there's only boxing at this point. (laughs) And I'm hoping that we do have the time to put up a a tree after that. And I I don't know, I I think it's sort of a a hit and miss with me with with the holiday season with how much uh, chintz we put around the house and the lights and everything. It just really depends on what's going on. Because as an actor, I, I moved around so much and I was often working on Christmas or the days before and after. So there's not a real tradition in our house, but now that we're settling here in Colombia, I'm hoping that we can can pull out all the stops, at least in future years. <laughs> Nolly, what are your favorite seasonal, theatrical and musical magic moments? Well, you know, that's never a fair question to ask a musician because <laughs> the list is long and eternally changing, I think. But I will be honest with you, White Christmas has always 
been at the very top of my on my list. There are two things that must happen every year for me, and that is the viewing of White Christmas and the viewing of It's a Wonderful Life. And if those two things don't happen, then I am in a bar humbug place. <laughs> it's not Christmas. I have to say, my favorite Christmas movie is a very dark comedy from Finland called Rare Exports about bad Santa. It's dark and Santa's evil, and ah, that makes my Christmas complete. <laughs> I love it. Lisa, this stage adaptation is only 22 years old, but its origins are firmly post-war American dream idealism. And so its nostalgia really belongs to a world that is barely recognizable today, especially if you are 18 years old. And I'm curious what contemporary 2022 Stevens students think about White Christmas. They are so excited about it. I think that being lovers of theater and of musical theater, several of them are musical theater majors, but even the acting majors, they're just so excited to step into these roles, to step into this world. I think that we're all sort of aching for that connection to goodness and kindness and some sort of attention to connection as well as even in these complicated times, a celebration of well, honoring more like of our service members. There is a general and these are soldiers, both Phil and Bob, and uh, they are veterans. And so there's a, a sense of wanting to honor those people and what they've contributed and wanting to connect with some kind of humanity when all around us, there just seems to be so much chaos and turmoil and even um, such divide in our country. And so I don't mean to get too philosophical or deep about it. It is white Christmas. And we, you know, it's, <laughs> it's a really uh, lovely, fun musical that has classic songs by Irving Berlin that so many people know. I think they can relate to the values that are being highlighted in the show and wanting to connect, wanting to fall in love wanting to celebrate each other and connect in the holiday season and to help out someone that they respect and revere, in this case, General Waverly, who's in a bit of trouble. I think that the basic human values are connecting with the students. Nolly, talking about Irving Berlin, all the music in White Christmas is written by Irving Berlin. And I think I read somewhere that it is ranked as moderately difficult in terms of its vocal demands. As the vocal coach for the show, what are its complexities? Well, I think ultimately for our young students is finding a way to, to connect in very authentic and real ways to what ultimately really boils down to, to them, I think sometimes feels like a different language not just of different musical language, but, you know, as far as lyrics and the way that this former generation communicated with one another, I think maneuvering that and finding a way to connect in a very real, authentic ways is at the core of, of any challenge. But these students have really risen to the challenge. And uh, I think the audience is going to be very pleased with what they hear. Lisa, it's a show that is really heavy on the dance skills and you have the talents of another former Broadway performer, Darren Gibson, in the conservatory's faculty. Tell us a little bit about Darren's vision for the dance component of the production. Well, I wish Darren were here to speak more eloquently than I will about dance, not being a dancer myself. But what I've watched unfold is that Darren is a visionary and he also is very true to the period. 
while modernizing it in a way that is fresh and new and that works for the talents and abilities of our students, which has surpassed my expectations. They have tremendous dance skills, especially tap and White Christmas depends on tap dancing a lot. And uh, he has just worked with the students to challenge them, but also to allow their their true skill set to come to the service and be showcased in a way which supports the storytelling. And it's just really aesthetically pleasing and cohesive with the music that Nolly and the orchestra is making. And it's just uh, delightful to watch his process. Not being a dancer myself, I'm always fascinated by it. But you kind of hula hoop though, right? <laughs> I, did, I did have to hula hoop when I was in <laughs> a show directed by Twyla Tharp, the famous choreographer. I was the only non-dancing female in the show, and I was charged with being a, an animal trainer in a circus, and so who also had some major hula hoop skills. So I worked very, very hard. <laughs> <laughs> so you have a little sense of of moving around a stage. <laughs> yes, I mean I've had to dance, but I certainly do watch our students with awe at what they're able to do. The librettist for the stage musical, David Ives, said that the advice he would give to any performer, director or designer involved with the show is outward simplicity, inner generosity. That quote, speaking and listening are more important than trying to be funny here because it's humanity that's on offer, not snappy lines. This show can't be played as a musical of today. Lisa, how are you channeling David Ives's advice in your production? Oh my goodness, David Ives, one of my favorite playwrights in the world. You know, I think in all of my acting classes, as well as in the other acting classes that are taught by other faculty here, honesty, groundedness, truthfulness, authenticity, true personal connection to the material, clarity of text, all of these things boil over from the classroom and definitely are applied in rehearsals. And then you add in vocals, music, and dancing, and you've got, you know, the trifecta of the challenge, right? How to stay completely honest and connected while doing all of these things all at once and to to stay involved and present and alive, that is the the challenge for an actor of any age. And so how do we do it? We simply just carry over the teaching that is done in the classroom into the rehearsal process and respect the the process of each actor. They're individuals. This is not a cookie cutter situation where everyone is the same or learns the same way. And we meet the students where they're at so that this can be a growth opportunity for them as well as an opportunity to showcase their talents and skills as they are now. And so again, it's just a continued teaching process in the rehearsal room. Nolly, you said in an article a few years ago that the work of finding artistry is some of the hardest and most personal work someone like you, a vocal coach, can undertake. So when you're working with students who are completely immersed in this musical, theatrical process. How hard is it finding the artistry in them? What are some of the key steps that you've been able to give them to help them find that? Well, you know, it's interesting. And and I've certainly said this to Lisa in our process. One of the things I love about the White Christmas story, and and particularly the stage version of, of this telling, is that this is a very, very succinct clean telling of of this story. There's nothing in this that shouldn't be there or gets in the way. It's just a very simple 
story of generosity. And um, for me, a word that comes up, and I think even in a musical situation, and you mentioned this earlier, you know, part of the work is getting them to sort of empathize or get into the place and understand, like I said, this what on the surface may seem to them to be sort of a foreign language, a foreign musical language. It's not the kind of music that they listen to every single day. But the work is understanding how to connect with these humans who feel and experience on a very personal level the same things that we do today. Mm. And that's where the work, I think, happens. And then that's where I think ultimately, once that connection is made, then allowing yourself to tell their stories in, in their voices with your humanity connected to that, I think is the the work that I um, am watching Lisa do every night and not to put Lisa on the spot, but what a joy it is for me to sit in that room and watch this incredible work happen and to be a part of this incredible team. So does your work happen in the same room or are you training the students in side rooms, like away from that rehearsal room? Generally, we're in the same space. I mean, you know, we share the time in the rehearsal process, but but we're all working collaboratively as a team. Lisa, I often, when I'm talking to local actors, I ask them about their relationship with their character, whether they take them to the supermarket or invent a backstory for them. And and rarely does it seem that someone has a story for me. So I love that you encourage your acting students to create long autobiographies for their characters and get specific about the circumstances of the world the play is set in and the characters that inhabit it. And I wonder whether that has happened with this play and and how you have manifested that in your teaching for this show? That's a great question. Well, in my classwork with the students, they have written assignments. It being a production, I wouldn't say it would be best practices in the professional world or that pre-professional experience to require them to write papers. So I ask a lot of questions uh, just in terms of personal questions for them, not about their personal lives, but just individually how are you connecting with this? What specificity in, in terms of the given circumstances of the play can you identify? All of this needs to be very, very well thought out. If it's helpful to write it out, I encourage that so that it's not just a bunch of general acting going on, but very specific backstories. And when you refer to something, you know exactly the backstory around that thing you're referring to. And That's the kind of in-depth work that is required at the professional level and encouraged at the pre-professional level, obviously. I think they're feeling the benefits of it. Oftentimes, students in academia and and performing arts programs will do all of that work in the classroom. And then when it gets to production, it's like it all goes out the window. And I, I feel that this group has worked very, very hard to carry that over into into the rehearsal process. Does it go out of the window because of anxiety and stage nerves? No, I, I'm not really sure. I guess it would depend on the student. I think that the classroom is all about the process and the production is all about product. And we can forget that the process that we're teaching in the classroom is absolutely necessary in order to find ourselves at a product where we're really connected and and something we can be very proud of and live in authentically. And I've been um, pretty diligent about reminding them them of that, as well as Darren and Nolly 
have been reminding them of that, of that as well. Nolly, you obviously have not only sung on many stages, but you have acted on many stages. So I wonder when you've been in the role of an actor, how much you invent a backstory for your characters? Well, you know, I would love to say that I've always been a good student of, of the process, but I would be remiss if I <laughs> put that in out into the space. I do believe that absolutely in the voice studio, in the musical direction of the works that we're doing, one of the reasons I really felt compelled to come and join this group of faculty and join this program is that there is a real focus on the process. Mm. And that's something that I certainly know as a part of my own training and my own execution of, of my work. Um, but it is the process that leads to that honest product that is so critical. And I absolutely agree with Lisa. You know, I, I think it's easy for young students of the art to get sort of lost in the weeds when it comes to that and not to see the interconnectedness of that experience. Mm. I'm sure that for most of the students at the Stevens Conservatory for the Performing Arts, their dream is to have careers like both of you, to stand on major stages and create those meaningful emotional connections with audiences. And of course, there is no shortage of good looking people with great voices, but some people make it and some people don't. So Lisa, as someone who has been on Broadway, what makes the difference? How did you make it and some of your classmates didn't? Oh, my goodness. I sometimes feel like it was just dumb luck. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my, my journey to Broadway was long and slow. I was 18 when I moved to New York and put myself through conservatory training for acting, not musical theater. I was in an office job for over 11 years in a cubicle before I was able to quit that job and be a full-time performer. So not until my late 20s did I really feel like I had the skill set and the confidence that's required in order to book a job like that. And once I turned that corner and developed a skill set in musical theater acting and singing, um, which were not my background, then I just I just felt like I, I deserve a seat at the table. And I just started to imagine that it could, it could happen. And I was in New York already. And so I just started pounding the pavement and going to those auditions and uh, booked my first Broadway show from a chorus call, which is mm -hmm. something that can happen. It may be rare, but it does happen. And I think resilience is important, patience, and continual development of a skill set. Just because one graduates from a conservatory program or gets out of college, that does not mean, you know, it's the work is done. It is just beginning. Continued study in dance, in voice, in acting. It, it's, it's one of the common threads that I see for everyone that I admire who has, quote, made it and are successful. They don't stop studying. They just keep learning. And I think that's important. Nolly, what are your top three pieces of advice for the young people setting out in the business? Well, you know, Lisa spoke to a lot of it, actually. Often what I will say is that an understanding that when you cross the, the stage at graduation, that you are just beginning the work. You've been in the window of time where you've been collecting the tools. And then it's it's about understanding 
that you you now have the tools and now now the work really begins and it's it's multidimensional and complex it's not just about the skills of dancing and acting and singing but it's about the very human skills of how you interact and how you work and and your resiliency and i think you've probably even asked me this question before you know what is the secret combination you know if we, if we knew that <laughs> If we had the answer to that question, wouldn't it be wonderful? But the answer that I often give is when asked, the, you know, what's the secret to being successful in this business? And I said, you know, the given is the skill, the ability to execute the task at hand. The special is how you work and how you interact. It's the life skills piece. And so, you know, it's one of the reasons I love a small program like this. And I've worked my entire career in small programs because it's about... It's about growing one another and experiencing growth with one another in the journey of life. Indeed. Well, White Christmas will be on stage at Stevens College's Mecklenburg Theatre this Friday and Saturday and next Thursday and Friday evenings. Plus, there is a 2pm matinee performance this Sunday on December the 11th. You can find out about the show at stevens.edu forward slash box hyphen office. And Lisa Brescia and Nolly Moore, I shall quell my inner Scrooge and come to see your jolly extravaganza. Thank you both so much for making time to chat today. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for having us, Jane. I doubt that on the morning of Friday, July the 13th, 1945, Edna May Anderson purposefully set out to launch an international organization. But if anything disproves the idea that Friday the 13th is unlucky, it might be the Sweet Adelines, an international organization now numbering 21,000 women dedicated to preserving the a cappella barbershop harmony sound that was started that day in July 1945. When Edna May invited some women over to her home in Tulsa, Oklahoma, they wanted to do what many of their husbands were already doing, sing in chord ringing harmony. But the all-male barbershop harmony society had no intention of letting them be part of their organisation. So Edna May said, fine, we'll just do it ourselves. And they did. Within a year, the first chapter of the Sweet Adelines was formed, and within eight years, the first international chapter was started in Manitoba, Canada. The origins of barbershop harmonization and four-part a cappella singing lie deep in the African-American community of the late 1800s, but by 1920 it was becoming associated with white quartets, something that concerned James Weldon Johnson, the leader of the NAACP, who had grown up singing barbershop harmony. By the time the Barbershop Harmony Society and the Sweet Adelines were establishing themselves in the 1940s and 50s, barbershop quartets and choruses had, like so much else, become exclusively white cultural entities. The civil rights movement brought change with the Barbershop Harmony Society admitting African Americans in 1962 and the Sweet Adelines in 1966. And in 2016, at their annual convention, the Sweet Adelines very publicly recognised and faced their racist history and today works to educate their members about the truth of their past, stating that we believe it is important to be clear about what happened in the past because racism and discrimination were unacceptable then and they are something we will not tolerate now. 
Today, Sweet Adelines International is a globe-spanning organization separated into 24 regions, 500 chapters and 1,000 quartets. Here in mid-Missouri, our chapter is called The Heart of Missouri, directed by Twyla Duval, who has been with the chorus for almost 40 years and who I am delighted to have as my next guest, along with one of the chorus's bass singers, Heather Vukovic. Welcome to the show, Twyla and Heather. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Twyla, after almost 40 years of harmony singing, do you sit in meetings and mentally harmonize all the various voices and work out who would sing in which part? Oh, of course. (laughs) (laughs) I've even been caught in the elevator doing choreo moves. You're really living, living the experience. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> you have been in almost every musical and administrative role for the Heart of Missouri since you joined in 1984. And I'm curious how you've seen the organization change over that time, Twyla. Well, as you mentioned in your opening, diversity and inclusion is very important to the organization now. We have been striving very hard to include everyone and make sure that we include everyone in harmony so that it's an organization that fills the hearts and souls of all women who love to sing. Heather, I've read various personal stories online or seen them, and many people get introduced to the Sweet Adeline chapters by a friend, and it's something they're not really sure about. And then after one meeting, they are hooked. Tell us about your getting hooked on Harmony singing story. So I was introduced to Sweet Adeline's by my sister, who is also a part of our chorus, and she has a very strong music background. And uh, I don't, but I can sing. And she was like, come give it a try. It'll be fun. And I did my tryout and was a bass. And we love strong basses and strong women basses because it can be a very hard spot to fill sometimes. And just the environment with all of these other women is very addicting. I'm also very competitive by nature. And I liked that piece. I love performing. I love competing, which is along with the music education, kind of another piece of Sweet Adeline's, but just the environment with these women that you get into. And I'm a little bit younger than a lot of some of our other members. I equate it to having a room full of moms sometimes in a very (laughs) positive way. Like no matter what, they've got your back, kind of whatever's going on. They were all very warm and welcoming in the beginning and gave the space to learn because There is a really strong component of music education and collaboration and learning all of these things. And it's just an awesome, real positive energy that everybody brought to the table and was like, all right, I guess I guess I'll come back, I guess. And that was (laughs) seven or eight years ago at this point. (laughs) So as you said, you sing bass, which in regular choral terminology would be more in the male vocal range. But barbershop voice notation is different than the regular soprano, alto, tenor, bass, baritone. So explain a little bit about the bass range within barbershop harmonies and what your role is within that group. So when we think about barbershop style music, sometimes Twilight equates it as like the driver. Like we keep the beat, we keep everything moving forward. The range varies for some of our bases. I'm probably one of the ones that's a little bit on a higher end. So I can sing pretty low. I want to say a lot of our songs hit around like a low E flat. All of the bass music is written in bass clef, which was very interesting. I had never seen or learned how to read music in bass clef before. That was its own little challenge. But we have some basses that can go surprisingly low in their notes and they sound very, very strong. And it's such a cool 
thing, but we really do sort of try to keep everything lifted and try to keep the tempo moving forward and just like, I'm not going to say carry everyone on our backs, but (laughs) (laughs) kind of help carry and support and and add a little bit of uh, seasoning to the melody and the harmony or what you think of as traditional melody and harmony. Twyla, a cappella harmony singers are able to produce a special acoustic effect, a ringing chord or overtone. And I wonder if you might explain that for us in layperson terms. <laughs> sure. Barbershop music notes build upon each other, which builds harmonics, harmonics, and that's what produces the rings and the overtone. So as Heather was saying, she sings the bass note, which is the lower note, and then we build a chord upon that. So the lead part is the melody part, and then the tenor is a harmony part, but it typically sings above the melody part. So in your SATB example, the tenor line would be the soprano line, the alto line would be the lead line or the harmony line, and then the baritone line will be the tenor line in SATB range. And each one of those chords stack upon each other, and that's what produces the overtones and the rings. So those overtones and rings, I mean, you can't find that note on a on a piano keyboard. It is just when the voices harmonize together. It's a very unique sound to a cappella harmony singers, right? That is correct. And it's when all of these notes are aligned perfectly, it's usually an octave to an octave Uh, two octaves higher than what you would hear with the human ear. So it's really, that's when you get the goosebumps. That's when the harmonies really align and make you feel it in your soul. Right. There are quite a lot of barbershop harmony celebrities. There are people like the New Zealand singer Lord, who had the hit with Royals a few years ago. She was a barbershop singer. There's the former lead singer of the Lumineers, Naila Pekarik. And then back in 2012, there was a film called Pitch Perfect, starring Anna Kendrick and Rebel Wilson. I wonder whether these contemporary celebrities and shows like The Voice have brought younger people into harmony singing. Do you see more younger people getting involved with the organization? Oh, yes, definitely. Deke Sheridan is really active in barbershop, and he has been instrumental in bringing some of the younger generations to the art form. And then another question about membership. Back in 2018, the the Barbershop Harmony Society, which was historically an all-male group, they announced they would now be accepting women into their chapters. And I'm curious whether that had any effect on Sweet Adeline memberships. And also, does Sweet Adeline's accept men into their chapters? (laughs) Well, let me answer the latter question first. Sweet Adeline's have many males who are directors of the course, but they are not members of Sweet Adeline's. We as an organization have elected to remain as an all-women's group. Now, with regards to the Barbershop Harmony Society, I'm a member of that organization, and uh, so I haven't seen or noticed a change in our membership. It's just another avenue for those who love to sing and and love the harmony. They offer different opportunities than maybe what Sweet Adeline's will have. 
But we have a lot of members who are dual members of both Sweet Adder Lines and BHS. Oh, okay. So this Sunday, Heather, you have your annual fundraiser, the Sweets and Songs Extravaganza. So for people who are acapella curious, let's say, what does the event entail? Will they get to hear you sing? They will, yeah. So this event is one that we put on typically around the holiday season towards the end of the year. And uh, there's a couple different pieces for it. So the Sweets and Songs is one of our primary fundraisers. And that sort of helps with costumes or travel or new music or um, like any support that we as a chorus would need for things that might come out of our own pockets. The fundraiser really helps with that. But they do get to hear us sing. We have um, the show split up into two different halves. So the very first half is songs mixed up with some speaking parts. We actually just put a, a show on last week and very funny. It went very, very well. We had really good feedback. So we're excited to do that again. And then the second half is the remainder of like our Christmas songs that we do, our holiday songs that we do. We also have a silent auction that happens about the same time. So um, members of the chorus put together items, um, but also some food and snackies. We do little like activity sheets at the table if people bring their kids with them because it is a good fun family event also. Holiday music is a blast. It's fun to sing. It's fun to hear songs that you're familiar with done in a different style. And some of those songs, like like Twyla was saying, how the chords ring, some of those holiday songs ring like no other song does sometimes. And it just sounds incredible. So that's sort of a, a very brief summary of what the Sweets and Songs looks like. It's a, it's a super fun event, in my very unbiased opinion. <laughs> <laughs> and so if somebody comes along and listens and they think, I would love to, to do this – there is a requirement that people have some musicality. You can't just turn up and be tone deaf. You do have to be able to <laughs> sing to uh, be part of the chorus. But what are some of the, I know you have, like you said earlier, Heather, you have a lot of educational and development opportunities through the year. So what does an average year look like for a Heart of Missouri singer? How often do you meet and, and, and what happens at those events and, and what kind of opportunities exist for education? So very generally, we as a chorus meet weekly and our uh, rehearsals are about two and a half to three hours long every week, sort of depending what we're working on. And that's the time that we use to either introduce new music or keep practicing music we've already been working on. And we break out into sections and work on individual things within our groups. It's very interesting how, um, you know, the things that as bases we have to work on and approach are very different than the things that tenors have to work on. So we kind of work within our own little pods. Outside of that, there are kind of a variety of opportunities, depending on what you're interested in. We have some members of our chorus that are very interested in arranging and arranging music. Um, and Sweet Adeline's hosts a multitude of workshops about what does it mean to be an arranger? How do you arrange music? I know one of our members of our chorus is actually partnered up with a very prominent arranger within Sweet Adeline's to learn sort of the tips and tricks. And they arrange songs for a quartet that we sing in. There is different educational pieces about vocal hygiene and how do you keep your voice sounding clean? How do you keep singing healthy without it? Sometimes, you know, you sing and you do it wrong and you end up with pain or you end up with nodules. How do you prevent that? Vocal hygiene has been a really big push, I feel like, in the last couple of years with Sweet Adelines, especially. And as we get into like the cold seasons and, you know, everyone gets cold and stuffy and their throats get scratchy, it becomes even more important to know these things. We also have opportunities for if people are interested in singing as part of a quartet. So one member is each of the different ranges singing together with the music. You know, what does that mean? How do you compete? How do you 
do your stage presence? How do you put on a good performance outside of what your voice sounds like? You know, turning your face on or lifting your face is a really big part of music and a big part of the Sweet Adeline's presentation. How do you do that really effectively on stage? How do you move your body in a way that is not only aligned properly for singing, but it's also interesting to look at? Wow, there's really a a lot of things that you cover in your classes. So many things. (laughs) Well, if you are a cappella curious, you can find out more about the Heart of Missouri Chorus at heartofmissourichorus.org. And you can also read more about the umbrella organization, the Sweet Adelines at sweetadelines.com. And this Sunday, the Heart of Missouri will be singing holiday music at the Fairview Road Church of Christ at 3 p.m. And Twyla Duval and Heather Vukovich, thank you so much for shedding some light on this amazing skill that you have and for making time to chat today. Well, thank you for having us. Thank you so much. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. to my guests this evening, the Missouri Symphony Orchestra's music director-designate, Wilbur Lynn, from Stevens College, theatre director, Lisa Brescia, and vocal coach, Nolly Moore, and from the Heart of Missouri Chorus, its director, Twyla Duval, and singer, Heather Vukovic. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. This has been Speaking of the Arts, and my name is Diana Moxon. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! Missouri!